This is an ABC podcast. What's wrong, Skip? What's happened? Well, to fill you in, Skippy the kangaroo, German sportswear maker Puma has decided not to use roux leather in its shoes. A few years ago, the use of kangaroo leather by luxury brands like Prada and Versace was on the nose, so they stopped using it. Now there are lobbyists in Europe and in the United States arguing that kangaroo harvesting in Australia is cruel and unnecessary. Back home, though, kangaroo harvesters would say there are no shortages of roos in the wild and their numbers are managed respectfully and responsibly. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajuk, Perth. What does Australia's most famous animal, the kangaroo, and the world's most popular sport have in common? Di Maria coming in as well. It's Neymar and it's 2-0. It's not the height soccer players like Neymar can jump, but rather what's on his feet. Because kangaroo leather has been used by some of the world's most famous sports brands for soccer boots or cleats, as they call them in America. Happening now, the Oregon legislature is considering a bill that would ban the sale of kangaroo parts. It specifically takes aim at sports apparel manufacturers that use leather from the animals to make their products, like soccer cleats. The measure would affect Nike, which is based in Washington County and is the state's largest employer. In Oregon, it's been debated whether or not its biggest employer, Nike, should continue to use roux leather for its products on the basis of animal welfare issues. But in Germany... Puma has already decided that it will stop using the leather in its latest line of boots, opting to use a synthetic material instead. Now, Puma has said in a media release it will phase out the use of kangaroo leather by the end of this year. Back here in Australia, filmmaker Mick McIntyre is behind Kangaroos Alive, a group that spearheads a movement pushing for what they call the ethical treatment of kangaroos. Now, Mick, what do you make of this decision by Puma? Yeah, Puma's doing the right thing. They're no longer contributing to this inhumane slaughter of our national icon. It's, you know, Puma's replacing kangaroo skins with a new technology that will outperform leather and is, is sustainable, unlike, you know, killing kangaroos. You'd be well aware of the debate that's taking place in Oregon and the United States about the use of kangaroo leather by Nike. Do you think this decision by Puma could influence the decision that Nike are looking at making or what, or that argument in Oregon? Uh, since we started lobbying in Europe three years ago, we've seen a number of brands um, stop the use of kangaroo uh, meat and skins, including big fashion brands like Prada and Versace and Diodora and now we see the German shoe manufacturer Puma. Clearly there's a list of companies that will follow this as well. So yeah, we fully expect other companies to follow suit. The Kangaroo Industry Association of Australia represents the commercial harvesters and suppliers of kangaroo products and we did contact them to see what they made of Puma's decision. Let me play you what they had to say. The Puma direction was taken some time ago and from our perspective is a move towards a new synthetic alternative rather than a move away from kangaroo. 
From the industry's perspective, this is a cyclical trend. We have other shoe manufacturers that have increasing demand due to the environmental benefits of kangaroo leather. Kangaroo leather is fast becoming known as an eco-friendly option due to its longevity, biodegradability and sustainability. Key initiatives we are spearheading include carbon footprint accreditation, giving formal recognition that kangaroos have one-third the carbon footprint compared to cattle and sheep. They emit less methane, require less water, place less pressure on grazing lands and don't require energy to capture and contain. Mick, do you agree that this is less about ethics and more about a cyclical trend towards synthetic materials by Puma? About two years ago, we hosted a film screening in Europe that was attended by Puma employees, and we know for a fact that they were shocked and horrified at the way kangaroos are treated in the commercial kangaroo industry. So we know that this is, this is about how kangaroos are treated in Australia due to the commercial industry, so we know for a fact firsthand that this is totally an ethical decision and that the companies that have banned kangaroo products do not want blood on their on their products, and we only have to look at um, the recent New South Wales parliamentary inquiry that really uncovered the true nature of the commercial kangaroo industry. And they the, this this parliamentary inquiry uncovered um, the fact that there is no regulation at the point of kill, there is no monitoring of how these animals are shot. And this for the Europeans was just um, unacceptable. Um, this is in the inquiry's report. It was also uncovered in this New South Wales inquiry that neither the New South Wales or the federal government could um, tell us, because they collect no data on how many baby joeys are killed every year, as collateral damage, as they call it, to the commercial kangaroo industry. This is an inhumane and barbaric industry and we think that it has no place in the 21st century. But those that harvest kangaroo meat would say that you're wrong, that what you're saying is not true. Um, we have witnessed it. We, uh, we, have, we, we have multiple eyewitness accounts of the true nature of the commercial kangaroo industry. You only have to read the New South Wales Parliamentary Inquiry, the dozens and dozens of submissions that were put to that inquiry that prove that this is inhumane and barbaric industry. You only have to read the report, which was a bipartisan report. Liberal, Labor, Greens, Independents all submitted to this report. You only have to read their recommendations to understand that this is an industry that doesn't belong in the 21st century. What about the other points made by the Kangaroo Industry Association of Australia there around carbon accreditation, a third of the carbon footprint compared to cattle and sheep? What, what do you make of those points? Any wildlife that has a commercial incentive placed on its head loses out. You only have to look at our history as, as a civilised world to know that once you make wildlife commodity, the wildlife lose. You only have to look. You only have to look at whaling. You only have to look at ivory. You only have to look at fisheries. I mean, fisheries, the most regulated, in, one of the most regulated industries in the world, and every single fishery stock is collapsing. Kangaroos are no different. You place an economic incentive to kill kangaroos, 
and the kangaroo populations will collapse. And we already have evidence of collapse of kangaroo populations across Australia. And you don't have to take my word for it. You only have to read the New South Wales Parliamentary Inquiry report to know that. You only have to see that the New South Wales government, the Queensland government, the Victorian government have all shut down sectors across their states to, be to become no kill zones because one reason only, they've run out of kangaroos in those zones. Mick, what, what do you make then of a farmed product like sheep, cattle and sheep? What's your stance on those industries? Well, the cattle and sheep, the whole farming discussion around kangaroos is a separate discussion and we need to separate it. I think the commercial kangaroo industry attempts to merge the two. They're not the same. They are, they are in it for money. They are not in it to help farmers. So the, the, the issue of cattle and sheep farming and kangaroos, it's a separate discussion. It has to be held, it has to be done, and we look forward to that discussion because as Australians, I think when we ask people, do you want to see kangaroos on the landscape? Most people say yes. Okay, what does that look like then? And then we decide what does it look like? Right now, all we have is this toing and froing from one side to the other of everyone accusing of, you know, each other of different things. But clearly, the economic incentive blurs the discussion because you can't discuss something when there's an economic incentive because they just want to make money. But there is we're, an we're, uh, Sorry, go ahead, Mick. No, no, I'm just saying that we need to separate out the commercial incentives for killing kangaroos because clearly they are out to make a profit. They don't care about our national icon. And, and quite frankly, as an Australian, I'm appalled that that's what we want to do with our national icon. But there, there is an argument that roos aren't in short supply, that they are, they, they're culling kangaroos is necessary for land management. What do you say to that argument, Mick? I've just pointed out there are several areas in New South Wales, Victoria and Queensland that have resulted in so few kangaroos that they've had to shut them down from commercial shooting. This myth that there are too many is just that, a myth. And this is something that's not reported. Why wasn't the findings of the New South Wales Parliamentary Inquiry, um, why wasn't that widely reported? because it doesn't suit the narrative. And the narrative that we've all grown up with in Australia is that there's too many of them. Well, that narrative is the myth. Given this decision by Puma, obviously a major supplier of footwear, and then we've also there's an argument around Nike, do you see the phasing out of Rue Leather altogether? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the 21st century, we are already seeing that we don't need to kill our, our wildlife to produce products. I mean, again, the history is, is, is strewn with, with extinctions of wildlife. I mean, look at Australia's track record with mammal extinction. I mean, it, it's appalling. Do we even want to risk that happening to our wonderful national icon? And I'm telling you, that there are lots of areas out there in those, in those zones in Australia where there are no kangaroos and why isn't that reported? Mick McIntyre, who is from Kangaroos Alive and is a filmmaker, thanks very much for talking to Australia Wide. Thanks for having me. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide.
And now to central Queensland, where the town of Wowen currently has no safe drinking water on tap and it desperately wants to change that. The water quality of the town is said to be so bad, locals say when they use it for washing their clothes, they end up bleached. The Banana Shire Council says it's looked into a local desalination plant, but it's just too expensive. But some residents told Katrina Bevan if quality can't be improved, the price of water should be drastically reduced. When Robert Houston moved to the small town of Wowen a few years ago, it wasn't long before he realised how poor the water quality was. I was pretty shocked to know that, yeah, couldn't drink town water or no good for washing, bleaches your clothes and everything. The town's water supply is non-potable, which means it's not suitable for drinking. So Robert paid around $5,000 to install a filtration system on his house earlier this year so he could improve the quality for showering and washing. No more bleaching of our clothes. So I feel safer washing our clothes now. Don't have to go to laundromat or anything like that. And You yeah. still wouldn't drink it though? No, I still wouldn't drink it. Don't even feed it to my dogs. Robert and other locals rely on rainwater for drinking supplies. But in periods of drought, those rainwater tanks run dry and residents have to truck in their own supplies. That's happened to mum of four, Jolene Capenick, four times in the last few years. Yeah, because it's pretty dry out this way when we don't get good rain. Yeah, well, when you run out of water and you need it, you just got to do what you got to do. It gets a bit much when we have six people living in our house, so rainwater does not stretch far at all. The town has a population of around 200 people. Jolene is one of many suburban residents in the town who want to see the water quality improved. Oh, it's so bad. I don't even know how much cutlery I bought because it just rusts it. If you try and wash up in it, it just stains your clothes and it's not good on your skin or anything. You dry and break out and all sorts of stuff. That's not even good for the toilets. You should see how many toilets are corroded around here. The Banana Shire Council supplies the water to the town. It says it's explored the option of building a desalination plant, but it was deemed too expensive. The council has also shifted the bore multiple times since the town's inception, and it's now looking at drilling a deeper bore in the next 12 months to try and improve water quality. It's an issue local Ian Willis has been dealing with for the 26 years he's lived there. Desalination would be the go, but then the rates go up again. Can't win anyway. The council charges $1.96 a kilolitre for Tier 1 water usage in Wowen, the same as the nearby town of Biloela, which has suitable drinking water. But the council says it has to subsidise the Wowen supply, as what it charges for the water doesn't cover the cost of extracting it. Dylan Jones runs local businesses in nearby Theodore and Delulu and is working to reopen his service station in Wowen after it was forced to close following storm damage in 2021. He says when the business was operational, he had to use treated rainwater, which was tested by council. But when that wasn't available, he had to truck water in at a cost of thousands. It's a struggle because you constantly got to buy water. If you haven't got water, you haven't got a business. Can't serve coffees, can't, can't do anything, can't clean, clean cars, can't wash windscreens, can't do nothing. How long have you been asking them about this? So I've been asking for the last three and a half years that we've been here with the business. And I can nearly guarantee the town's been asking for the last 20 plus years. Less than 50 kilometres from Wowen, the Rockhampton Regional Council is still trucking water into Mount Morgan, which has struggled through drought for several years. A pipeline to secure a permanent potable water supply to the town is now being built. 
Dr Anna Monero with the Water Justice Hub at the Australian National University Crawford School of Public Policy says though many towns across the country struggle with drinking water security, the extent of the problem is hard to quantify. We don't have a systematic centralised record of water quality in, in Australia. The information is kept at, at the local level, sometimes regional. So we really do not know with a high degree of confidence of how prevalent this is. We know we have a lot of anecdotal evidence that this is happening across the, you know, obviously Queensland, Northern Territory, Western Australia and other parts of Australia. But we are still unable to know how many people do not have access to safe drinking water, which quite frankly is is astonishing, knowing that Australia is one of the highest developed countries in the world and we have the technology not only to deliver the services but we have the technology to monitor and report the, the, the places that are that are not meeting those targets. Dr Anna Maniro at the Australian National University Crawford School of Public Policy ending that story there from Katrina Bevan. This is ABC Australia Wide. The flooding in the Gulf of Carpentaria in Queensland is not letting up since the rain started falling three months ago. About 40 homes have been inundated. Now, it's a difficult place to get to at the best of times, but this is what helicopter pilot Jack Clark could see from the sky. Yeah, the biggest thing is the depth of the water. It's never, never been so deep in a lot of places. Been a lot of, never happened. Been a lot of houses, been through a lot of houses, never been through before. Hundreds of years of being there, so... Yeah, and what are you seeing cattle-wise? Ah, oh, catastrophic, catastrophic losses. Cattle swimming around up for days on end here, so they, and you just can't get to them all. Um, yeah, the worst of it's where they, where thousands are trying to get on one little dam square or that, up into a turkey's nest, and they're just smothering each other, and yeah, they're dying all underneath. It's just a pile of cattle. And, yeah. Plenty of cattle flat rounds hung up and hung up in trees and that. There's, yeah, every day you go, there's more and more scattered everywhere. You look down, there's cattle hung up in trees dead. Many still swimming though. Yeah, there's still plenty swimming, mate. There's, well, it keeps changing. They but up this northern end of Burketown, especially on the eastern side of Burketown. It's pretty bad, eh? They bloody is going to be in it for days and days and days. So. That's helicopter pilot Jack Clark speaking to Alice Marshall about the situation in Burketown in the Gulf of Carpentaria. You're listening to Australia Wide on ABC Radio. The sun-soaked beaches and crystal clear waters of Wapa Great Keppel Island are part of what makes it a tropical paradise. The island is a half-hour ferry ride from Yapoon in central Queensland on the southern end of the Great Barrier Reef. And it's the perfect place for a holiday. But these beaches are also a second classroom for the Harris sisters. Rachel McGee and Michelle Gately headed out to meet the Harris family to find out what it's like to go to school on an island. That's Ruby Harris and her school lunchtime is a little out of the ordinary because most days... It involves playing on the beach or swimming in the ocean. But growing up on an island is the only life Ruby and her sisters Macy and Libby have ever known. Because seven years ago, their parents Kelly and Amy Harris swapped corporate careers in Brisbane for life off-grid on Wapa Great Keppel Island. 
We found out um, we were pregnant with our first and the day, the very following day Kelly started working out here. So Kelly was just going to work here and we kept our place on the mainland and then um, I worked in Rockhampton for a while and just would travel on the weekends and then once we fell pregnant with the second one soon after there was no doubt at all that we would, we would come over here full time. The Harris family are among fewer than 20 people who live permanently on the island off the Capricorn coast, although they're always joined by dozens of temporary staff. When their eldest daughter, Ruby, started prep last year, it meant starting distance education. I had very low expectations of what schooling at home would be like and I thought it would only be a couple of hours a day, but it proved extremely challenging trying to juggle full-time work, three kids under five and just in general living on an island. Now in year one, Ruby has been joined in the at-home classroom by her younger sister Macy, who this year started prep. So what does a school day look like for the Harris girls? They've got their online classes, so they do probably about an hour to two hours online with a teacher from the distance ed. Um, In between there, they've got lessons that they do. There's a pretty strict curriculum that we have to follow with the school to make sure that they are on track. And then usually by lunchtime, most days, we can get to the beach and do our outdoor activities, do some of the learning at the beach and just have fun, really. That flexibility to learn outdoors is something the Harris family love about distance learning. And even a walk down to the beach can be an opportunity to learn something new. Uh, We do a lot of our counting, uh, whether we're collecting stuff, collecting trees, collecting sticks, shells, learning to write in the sand, a lot of of their their HPEs down at the beach and and in the water. Yeah, just as much as we can do. They're much happier outside. But Miss Harris admits she was surprised by how much support that they as parents and as students have received from the distance education teachers. Both girls only have three students in their class, so they both have a teacher, which is amazing support. So we don't have to share a teacher with 20, 25 other kids. And and they're there whenever you need them, um, online, on the phone. They're always checking in. But, uh, yeah, it's an amazing program to go through. On the other side of the screen are people like Ruby's teacher, Amelia Ahern, who teaches through the Capricornia School of Distance Education. It is really different to being in a classroom because all of our resources and all of our lessons have to be tailored to being taught in an online setting as opposed to in a classroom. We've got specific programs and we've got different uh, strategies and we've got a lot of things in place to make sure that what we deliver online is you know, as close, as best we can get it to match what students would get in the classroom. Obviously in an online setting um, we have to be really conscious that um, the students are not in front of us and so um, when we're delivering our lessons we've got to check that the students are engaged and participating in different ways Um, so I guess it's things like you know we've got chat chat that we can monitor we've got online you know places where they can work and we can see what they've achieved or see what they've done Um, and yeah I guess just resourcing is really different we've got to be so organized we've got to have everything completely planned out and we've got to communicate with our parents and home tutors what the students need on what days I think people think distance means distance all of the time Um, whereas we have our mini schools we've got one week per term where the students come in so they'll be in the classroom with us for that week Um, we also do things like clusters where we travel out to um, locations where the students are and 
you know, we put things on there too. So there is some student-facing opportunities as well. The Harris family might be living in a tropical paradise, but island schooling isn't without its challenges. The island is off-grid, relying on generators for power. And patchy internet connection can be the most frustrating when the girls are trying to take part in those online classes. Yeah, so we've only recently just got Wi-Fi in our house. So for for 12 months, we um, on the back end of our neighbour's Wi-Fi, which is not very consistent. So we, we did spend 12 months of schooling with internet dropping in and out. On a cloudy day, the internet drops in and out. So it's, um, it is challenging, but we, we make do. We, we get there. And after-school activities require a little bit more planning and some patience than most families are used to. So we've got to stay the night because we can't get back. So we've got to pack a bag, catch a ferry, get in the car, drive to the activity, do the activity, and then um, turn around and come back early the next morning back for school. So it is qu- it's quite exhausting. It's about an hour and a half travel just to do one hour activity of gymnastics. But the Harris family wouldn't have it any other way. Sounds pretty good to me. I wouldn't mind the Harris girls' life. Really does sound magical. Rachel McGee and Michelle Gately with that story about the Harris family on Greater Keppel Island. And that's Australia Wide for this Monday. I hope you have a lovely evening. Cheerio. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.